As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, so now we come again as we do, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, uh, to take up uh, that which is in the scripture. It's your word, we profess that, we know that, we believe that. And so we pray that you would grant to us the grace um, to listen well to it, to think well through it. And Father, that you would attend our minds by your Spirit to help us to understand. And you would attend our hearts by your Spirit to help us, enable us to believe. So we lift this moment to you in, in our church life, and our personal lives, in our life with you. That you would make of it that which you have before the foundations of the earth planned it to be. And we trust that it will be for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 19. Gospel according to Luke and chapter 19, please. I want to read beginning with verse 28 and take us through verse 44. So Luke chapter 19, please. This is the word of the Lord. And when he, and that he is Jesus there, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I will tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, this is the last Sunday of Lent. If I could again raise that category with you. And as we said, Advent is the Christmas as Lent is to Easter to kind of prepare us 
for Easter Sunday, if you will, not that every Sunday isn't like an Easter Sunday or like a Christmas Sunday in that sense, but, but just in the history of the church, it's been helpful to, um, to pace ourselves, to plan ourselves out, perhaps in this particular way. And so this is the last Sunday of Lent. You know, in Advent, uh, the question was asked, who's coming? And we thought about the prophets, and we even asked the question, uh, who's coming again? And we see that it's Jesus who's coming again. And we can consider the prophetic word for it before Jesus came, and then in anticipation of him coming again. And uh, Christmas, of course, the great celebration of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. And, and we used as our refrain during that time, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Um, hallelujah. And then Epiphany, this time of revelation, this time of, of seeing who is he really. And we took a look at Jesus' baptism and found there uh, his identity with us. He identified with us in his baptism and his identity from the perspective of God. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And all of that, we saw who Jesus was, the very son of God. God made man, if you will. And we saw his mission, he would be uh, the Lord of the nations and... We saw how that would come about by way of his, his suffering. And then we found ourselves as Lent began in the wilderness with Jesus as he was being tempted by the devil. Now, the reason, of course, that that took place, that Jesus was being tempted by the devil, is because he came to be, as we said then and as we know to be true, he came to be the second Adam. The first Adam who came, represented us all. That's how, how God worked. Now, he was the perfect representative. He was created to be the representative of human beings. And he was, and he represented all of us. And Satan came and tempted him. And you remember that Adam gave in to the temptation of Satan, not to follow God, but to follow the word of the, 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 the serpent and, and to follow his own way. And, 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 and we realized then that sin and the corruption and condemnation that came because of it infiltrates all of humanity. Now, Jesus comes as the second Adam to undo all that the first Adam did to regain all that the first Adam lost and even better. And he does that as a representative for all those the Father had given him, to all those who were in him, to all those who would believe. And so he comes to be the second Adam. And so he goes and to the wilderness and there the Spirit leads him. And he then, as the first Adam, the second Adam, was tempted by the devil. But the outcome was different. This second Adam, representing all those in him, all those who would believe, the, the second Adam didn't sin, didn't succumb to the temptation of the evil one. In fact, he obeyed. And as we said during this time of Lent, what we're thinking about is the fact that he, Jesus, did this for us. He for us. And so his obedience then counts for us. His righteousness given to us. And so he didn't disobey. He obeyed to regain all that was once lost, you see. And then we followed Jesus. And we made our way to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. A turning point in this gospel as you're reading it through. And as you read it through, you can see this as a pivot, if you will. Uh, a, a turning point where, where, where Jesus sets his face, Luke tells us, to go to Jerusalem. 
And we know that expression set his face comes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who used even a more poignant expression, that he set his face like flint, his face became like stone. Nothing would change it. He's going to go to Jerusalem. What's profound about that is that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die. And, 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 and Luke then from that point on uh, kind of keeps us up to speed as, as we're meandering around or so it seems from place to place, Jesus is. And we say, but, but it is, isn't he going to Jerusalem? And, and every so often Luke will give us a marker and say, as he was going to Jerusalem or on his way to Jerusalem. And now we find the moment of truth in, in verse uh, 28. Uh, and when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been reading through Luke's gospel account, this, this should just take your breath away. You go, we're here. We're here. We've, we've just sort of meandered. Now we're here. We're in Jerusalem. He had set his face to go there. This is the whole thing. This is, I'm getting to the end here. I'm, I'm, this is the climax of, 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 of what, what I've been reading about. In terms of Jesus. And so he, he had set his face to, to go there. And now he, 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 is, he is there. We call this Palm Sunday. Uh, if you grew up in the church like I did. You have memories of children with palm branches. If you walk around today you'll see palm branches all over the place. And kids waving them probably. I mean that's just the whole nature of, of this day, Palm Sunday. We take that of course by, Luke doesn't even have it in his account. The other evangelists do, Matthew and Mark and John. But, but, but on this day, waving palm branches and, and, and all of that as, as Jesus comes in. And he comes to Jerusalem. Presumably, I suppose if you didn't know anything about Jesus, presumably he comes into Jerusalem like the other pilgrims are on their way because it was the time of the Passover. And the Passover was a time when uh, men in, uh, of, who were Jewish would be called back to Jerusalem from all over the place to come for the celebration of Passover. And so here they come. Jesus is one of them. And I, I think often, what was it about that moment in time? What was it about that time that they looked upon Jesus right there and it seemed like they got it? I mean, this really should be the epiphany passage if we're going through that time of the church here. They, they said, I see it finally. What is there about him? You know, we've been traveling with him and, he, and, 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 and yet some believed and some doubted and there were always this question about who Jesus really was. And, and, and now it seems at that moment in time, they see it, they get it. Was it the fact that he was on this little donkey, the foal of, of, of a donkey? Was, was that the, the situation that that enabled them to see, because you see, the, the, the prophet Zechariah had spoken of such a king, Messiah, as he, this passage came to be known for, uh, uh, coming into uh, Jerusalem victorious. In Zechariah, in chapter 9, a passage that deals with God's judgment on the enemies of, of, of Israel, and he, he speaks like this, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you remember how that 
little fall of the donkey was acquired. Perhaps there were prearrangements. Maybe Jesus had prearranged with the owner of the donkey and said, there's going to be people coming to get this donkey and you'll know who they are because when you ask why are you taking it, here's the, here's the secret password. Uh, they're going to say, uh, the Lord has need of it. And maybe that was already arranged. Or maybe, because the authority of the Son of God, he just simply, the power of those words would yield up this donkey either way. It was acquired, this fall of a donkey, and Jesus knew that it would be the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Apostle Matthew tells us that very thing. And then it goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea uh, and from the river to the ends, to the ends of the earth. And they began to, to use this psalm, Psalm 118. We used a good bit of it in our call to worship this morning so it could be on your lips as well as their lips, my lips as well as their lips. And, uh, and so we, we use it in Psalm 118 was a traditional psalm to sing during the time of Passover. In fact, during the Passover time, the um, Israelites would sing generally from Psalm 113 to 118. And that would sort of be their singing for, for that time period. You might remember that as Jesus left the, what would become the communion meal that evening on Thursday, they said they sang a hymn and went out. It's likely that it was this one, the last of the hymns that would be sung during that time, which is a fascinating thing to think about because within Psalm 118 is the expression we sort of like to sing with great joy. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We sing it usually because we're looking forward to a good day. Jesus sang it as he went out to the cross. But, but they began to sing it, and, and within it is this prayer, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God save us. Blessed, as, as Luke has it, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they saw Jesus as a king, and he wasn't coming on a war horse. He wasn't coming with a big chariot. He wasn't coming with great armor. He was coming in peace. He was coming humbly uh, to bring peace in a way that no one would have expected him to bring peace, which is give his life. And perhaps they didn't even know the kind of peace that he's going to bring. The great confusion in the life of Jesus uh, is, is, is what kind of peace is he going to bring? Did he come to deliver us as Moses delivered our people out of Egypt? Did he come to deliver us from the Romans in some sense? I mean, that was a prevailing view. How, from whom was he going to deliver? And Jesus, of course, was going to deliver from sin. From the wrath of God. He was going to bring peace, not with the Romans per se, but he was going to bring peace with God. I mean, that was the point of it all. And, and, and yet they didn't quite see that necessarily, but they, they did see here is this king, the son of, son of David, this king, this savior, this Christ. And the other evangelists, have on the lips of the people, the son of David, Hosanna, son of David, uh, because in, in, in simply, Luke just has king, but the same thing, you see. David the great king, there was a promise made to David the great king. David was known as a man after God's own heart, which is an amazing statement. 
and also an encouraging one. Because if you think too much about the life of David, you can't help but think of Bathsheba and his great sin, not only of adultery, but of lying and of murder. And yet still he was known as a man after God's own heart, no doubt because of his deep and sincere repentance. But David one day was musing about his own life and, and he, he, he looked around and he said, I live in this beautiful palace and God lives in a tent. Uh, because at that point in time, uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence, the symbol of the presence of God was living in, in a tent, really, this tabernacle in the Holy of Holies place. And so David says, I'm going to build God a house. And God said, no, you're not. And if you could read this passage, you, you get the sense when you read this passage, you get the sense that God is toying a bit with, with David. At least the puns are, are, are sort of flying. And, 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 and he says to David, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house, Solomon. Your son's going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. Well, David already had a house. But what he meant to David was, I'm going to build you the house of David, a dynasty out of which kings will come because one day the king will come from that dynasty, from, from, from your house, from the house of David. And so Jesus comes the house of da- from the house of David. And so they see the son of David. They see the king. And that, that's what they're, they're praising here. And so they, they take off their cloaks. This could be called Cloak Sunday, I suppose, too. Uh, a little messier. Uh, but uh, take off their cloaks and put them on the ground as, as a sign of submission. I belong to you, king. Here, walk all over me. Here, here, I'm under you. Here, 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 come and, and, and I'll follow you. You see, I'll, I'll put this. My, I'm giving you my, my outer garment, if you will. They took palm branches, a sign of victory. And they put them down. They put them on the donkey and all that sort of thing. And they waved them uh, for Jesus, you see, as he comes in. So, so this is the scene that's, uh, that's taking place in the midst of in the midst of all of this, and of course, the contrast, a contrast, that we're to see here is the contrast between these worshipers and the Pharisees. The Pharisees who would have claimed to have been looking for the Messiah, the, the Pharisees who claimed to have desired the Messiah, the, the Pharisees that would say they were the ones closest to God and they were the true worshipers in Israel, they missed it, the others saw it, and what they said to Jesus really by way of rebuke is, shut up your disciples. And of course Jesus said, well, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. And the rocks would cry out perhaps in worship, or the rocks would cry out in accusation of the Pharisees. Be the same thing. Now that's what we always say on Palm Sunday and should. But as I was meditating this week and just looking at things and reading things and praying about things, and I realized that I've never gone on to the next verses on good. On, on Palm Sunday. I've never gone on to verse 41. I mean, I have in my reading, but I never have in my preaching or my teaching or any of that. I've never even, I've never talked about this. Verse 41, and he drew near and saw the city. When he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now, every scholar who considers 
this expression of Jesus weeping, says, this isn't simply crying. It's not like his eyes teared up. But he's sobbing. It's a sense of sobbing. And I don't want to necessarily import things upon Jesus, but only to say this. That men don't easily sob. I've sobbed. It takes a lot and it's not a pretty sight. And here's Jesus, the man of men, moved to such an extent that he's convulsing with tears. And so the question is, what would move Jesus to convulse with tears? I mean, can you see that? Don't just picture gentle crying or a tear falling, but, but watch his body pulsate with tears. And if he wasn't the Son of God, I'd say uncontrollable. But that sense of it, you see, what would make him weep like that? And, and what we have here is that he's weeping like that because he's anticipating, he's looking upon the judgment that is going to befall uh, Jerusalem. Um, he's looking upon the city, people who have been there and people I read tell me from the Mount of Olives at particular positions you can look down upon the city of Jerusalem and really see it. You can really see it and even in detail. You can see the temple if it were there still. You can see it even in detail so no doubt Jesus was high enough over it could look and see it and you know Jesus could see where we can't see anyway but he could see and see the the city of Jerusalem and and he begins to weep and you have to realize the importance of Jerusalem and the whole scheme of things, the importance of Jerusalem to God as he made it to be the holy city, the city of the great king, the city of God, if you will. And that's where the temple would be. That's where the very presence of God would be amongst his people. The, the, he would be housed there, if you will, that, uh, that, that, that that's where um, uh, people would come to pray. And God had promised, if you come here, you face here, if you come here, I will hear your prayers if you're coming to me. And, and that's where atonement was made for sin so that the people could live in the very presence of God. That's where God gave his priests to represent people before him. That God gave sacrifices to take the sacrifice rather than the people because of his love for his people so that they could be in his presence and, and, and he could protect and provide for them. And, and he said, be faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. Be faithful to me and I'll protect you and provide for you and, and all of this. And so so God gives this whole place, Jerusalem, to as Jesus had lamented over Jerusalem before. In Luke in chapter 13, verse 31, we read this. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. And behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood in her, under her wings, and you were not willing. 
In other words, he's in Jerusalem, we've loved you like a, like a hen loves its brood. I mean, how, how much more can we love? We've, and I desire to gather you in that way. Um, but behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you'll not see until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had lamented then, he laments even now. How sad that Jerusalem of all places, the very center of the worship life of Israel, the very life of Israel, how, how, how bad it would, how, how terrible it was that Jerusalem uh, would reject its prophets. The prophet was safer, the prophet of God was safer outside of Jerusalem than inside. They would reject and kill them as they would her Christ. And there's Jesus lamenting that very thing. He knows it. He knows this is what really what really is what really is taking place. B.B. Warfield, a theologian of a previous century of great note and notoriety, wrote a very helpful piece called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Groundbreaking in many ways, perhaps not bettered since by anyone. He writes this. We read of the manifestation of tears and sighs in Jesus. The tears which wet his cheeks when Looking upon the uncontrolled grief of Mary and her companions, he advanced with heart swelling with indignation at the outrage of death to the conquest of the destroyer were tears distinctly of sympathy. In other words, when he was at the grave of Lazarus, it was sympathy. He, he, he saw his dear friends weeping over the loss of their brother. He, 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 he was outraged, really, concerning death. And he wept. And he wept. Even more clearly, his own unrestrained wailing over Jerusalem and its stubborn unbelief was the expression of the most poignant pity. Oh, that thou hast known in this day, even thou, the things which belong unto peace. That's this moment that we're reading about. He said, the sight of suffering drew tears from his eyes. Obstinate unbelief convulsed him with uncontrollable grief. Similarly, when a man afflicted with dumbness and deafness was brought to him for healing, we're only told that he sighed. But when the malignant unbelief of the Pharisees was brought home to him, he sighed from the bottom of his heart. See, there's a qualitative difference. Yes, he, he sighed. He, 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 he was sympathetic, he moved, if you will, by the sight of physical suffering. But when he saw obstinate unbelief, he sighed to the bottom of his heart. Obstinate sin drew from Christ a deeper sigh than the sight of suffering. A sigh which in anger and sorrow both had a part. We may at any rate place the loud wailing over the stubborn unbelief of Jerusalem and the deep sighing over the Pharisees' determined opposition side by side as expo- ex- exhibitions of the profound pain given to our Lord's sympathetic heart by those whose persistent rejection of him required at his hands his sternest reprobation. He sighed from the bottom of his heart when he declared, there shall be no sign given this generation. 
He wailed aloud when he announced, The day shall come upon thee when thine enemies shall dash thee to the ground. It hurts Jesus to hand over even hardened sinners to their doom. It hurt Jesus to hand over even hardened sinners to their doom. We scratch our heads and we say, but Jesus, isn't your father sovereign? Could he not change the circumstance, the situation in such a way that would take away your grief? Isn't your father the one who ordains all things that come to pass? Isn't your father the one who does all that he pleases? Isn't your father the one whose will cannot be thwarted? Isn't? And the answer, of course, to all that is yes, he is. And we stand, sit, astounded at the grief of Jesus, the hurt that exists even as he judges those who deserve to be judged. And yet still he sobs. We come to get a sense of what God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. Take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, they repent. We're just astounded by the person of Jesus. But then notice too, the, what Luke records of Jesus saying, he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your, from your eyes. You see, there's a spiritual blindness that was upon them, a spiritual blindness because of sin, spiritual blindness that, that kept them from believing and, and sins that way. You know, when, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 4, he puts it like this. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said that the light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts, the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the God of this world, Satan, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from, from seeing. And that, that was still true as Paul writes his first letter that I read earlier this morning, a piece of. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He says, there are those who are blind who can't see it, and they're perishing, and it's, it's no good news to them at all. But to others who are being saved, it's, it's good news, it's great news, it's the only news, really. And he says to them, they should have known. They're ignorant of it, the blindness is there, but yet they're still responsible that you should have known. You of all people, Jerusalem. You should have known. And you've had it all. I called you to be mine. I made promises through Abraham. I delivered you through Moses. I gave you my law and covenant. I've given you the prophets. What didn't you understand about Bethlehem? What didn't you understand about the announcement of the angels? What didn't you understand when this 12-year-old boy was in the temple doing his father's business? What didn't you understand even before that when Simeon and Anna made their proclamation concerning Jesus and the consolation of Israel? 
What didn't you understand when he came speaking with authority? When he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What didn't you understand when, when he came with, with his power and authority over evil and over demons? What didn't you understand when he had power and authority over disease? What didn't you understand when he had power and authority over nature? What didn't you understand when he had power and authority even over death? What didn't you understand? And now you won't understand the cross. Not only that, you see. As he stood there weeping and wailing, he says, you, you never knew the things that made for peace. The thing that made for peace was all the atoning sacrifices summed up in Jesus. And they had all the atoning sacrifices. Didn't you know that this was necessary to take place? You should have known. You didn't know the things that really made for peace with God. You see, as human beings, we, we have a tendency to think that we make peace with God. Well, we can do that a number of ways, you see. We can make peace with God by saying God doesn't exist, therefore it's no worry. There isn't peace to need to be made, and so there isn't a God. So, so we're fine there. No peace with God needs to be made. Well, if there's peace with God to be made, I can make it. And normally what has to happen there is we suppress the truth about the true and living God and we make up a God of our own. We say, well, he's a God who just forgives. He's a God who just loves. And, and so we're fine. He's a God that accepts all people or at least accepts people like me because I'm doing the best I can. The best I can being defined by my best and by my can and by who I think God God is. We can really do it. We can really... Make peace with God. And he says, no, 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 you can't make peace with God. Here's what makes peace with God. I, Jesus would say, I make peace with God. I'm the one who gives myself. I'm the one who makes peace with God. I'm the one that you really, really need. And then he said, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Because you didn't know the time. Because you didn't realize that I'm here. You'll be destroyed. And it was Jerusalem. Less than 40 years later, no stone left unturned. Reports of a million people killed. The devastation was more than we can imagine. Judgment came. And you may say, well, how, how do we know when this day of visitation comes? Is it really coming? How can we, how we put that in our own terms? Well, we can put it on our own terms because we know the day of visitation comes that day when the gospel is made clear to us. That day when it's presented to us, whether it be by preachers or by Sunday school teachers or by parents or by, by friends or through a book or by reading the scripture or something on YouTube that speaks truth about Jesus. That's your day, if you will, of visitation it might come. At a time of crisis in your own life. When you realize. I can't do this alone. I need. I need the help of God. And then ask yourself. How do I get the help of God? How can I even approach God? How can I even come to God? And that's your day. You see that day. Take advantage of that day to seek him. Take advantage of that day to find him. It may come when sickness comes. Or death comes close. And you begin to. Ask that question, what will happen when I die? 
a day of visitation. Don't ignore that day. It may come in a day of national crisis when, when something happens nationally and we realize, oh no, what is God saying to us in this? Perhaps we're not all that. Perhaps we can't protect ourselves. Perhaps, perhaps we can't solve all of our problems. Perhaps we're the problem. And if we're the problem, where lies the solution? In God. It might come at that time when a, a friend comes to faith and begins to testify and says, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Look at what's happened in the context of my own life. You see, that's, that's that day of visitation. And the scripture says, don't ignore those. In fact, the author of Hebrews writes about this. This is the whole tenor of his, of his whole sermon, if you will. Today, he writes, quoting the Psalms, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, you will not enter my, my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhorts one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have before us a visitation. Now, doesn't mean that Jesus is going to show up visibly, bodily. Doesn't mean that this bread and this juice is going to turn into something it isn't, making it the tangible corporal body blood of Jesus. No, 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 no. But visitation. In the sense that he's saying to you, listen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body for you. It's given for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks this too, he came to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And that's it, you see. This declaring of the Lord's death, that's his visitation, that's him coming to us and saying, listen, see this, believe this. I died for sinners just like you. And you say, well, how, does I, how do I know that he died for my sins? Are you a sinner? Did Jesus come to die for sinners? What makes you think your sins are greater than the sins of others or that Jesus couldn't have died for them? He says, I came for the likes of you. Trust me. Believe me. Receive from me. Let's pray. Father, 
my prayer that even now that you would set this bread and this juice apart in such a way. Not that by any means we think it changes or that Jesus comes in any bodily form in it. But that you would set it apart in such a way that our eyes would be open. Our vision of who Jesus is would become clearer. And we would see the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that we know we're in his presence. We know that he comes to us with this statement that we are to trust him and him alone. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to this table that you would increase our faith. That we would trust more sincerely, more deeply than perhaps ever. And that you would enable us then to walk with you. Please now I pray. Call us to this place, this table. In Jesus' name.